0: Hi, it's Leah. Today I'm speaking to Sanya Joseph. Sanya is a computational neuroscientist interested in the nature of intelligence, both in humans and machines. She currently works at Janelia, a different kind of research institute that has been dubbed the Bell Labs of Biology. We cover everything from bottlenecks in the neuroscience space to new research paradigms for AI and the issues posed by tech and the current attention economy. Everything we discuss is linked in the show notes. So without further ado, here's our conversation. So Sonia, thank you so much for being here today. To start off, why don't you briefly introduce the field you're working in? It's guiding questions as well as perhaps the idea that got you hooked.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate being here. So let's see, the field I'm interested in, like most broadly, is the sort of strain of transhumanism, which is the thesis is that humans are at this sort of like awkward adolescence in the course of evolution. And The question becomes like, what technologies or what concepts can we work on to get humans to the next level safely? And obviously there are many avenues of attack from things like BCIs to longevity to exploring space but the area that I chose to focus on was understanding the nature of intelligence itself. So this sort of planted me in neuroscience, specifically computational neuroscience in the sort of more niche field between computational neuroscience and AI. So I went into neuroscience as an undergrad at Princeton, um, interested in the nature of intelligence and the brain was this proof of concept for intelligence. Little did I know that the field of neuroscience is, is vast. And not all of it really focuses on intelligence. I actually entered molecular neuroscience, which is very focused on the substrate of intelligence opposed to intelligence itself. So there will be a huge focus on neurotransmitters and molecules and like what computes with what. And it's fascinating research. And I ended up like researching um, this sort of like niche molecule um, of how like microglia impact the brain and synaptic pruning in obese mice. But the problem is that it wasn't at a high enough level of abstraction. So in computational neuroscience, like there's this idea of Mars levels, the first level being like the most abstract. And then there's a second and a third level. The third level is like concerned with this like biological implementation. But if you go to the first level, which is focused on the function, you have this sort of task recognizing images, like recognizing cats and dogs. And can we study the system at this highly abstract level? So naturally, this like actually sent me away from neuroscience and straight into AI. It was sort of like the deep learning revolution had taken off when I had switched. This was like back in 2016. And I was just fascinated by like ImageNet and all these like innovations that were coming out in machine learning and i i switched but i I didn't want to leave neuroscience either because i'm like there's still so much the brain can do that we haven't written down and we haven't reified in code yet so i was in this like middle area between the two and began working with a handful of neuroscientists who also were in this middle area and it's a philosophically interesting area like there, the philosophical differences between neuroscientists and AI researchers or, or machine learning researchers are, are numerous. So it's been really a lot of fun working in the middle of these two fields.
0: I'm super curious. Could you go deeper into the philosophical differences of AI and neuroscience as you see it?
1: So at the risk of like overgeneralizing a ton, and yes, this does not sure. apply to every neuroscientist <laughs> and this does not apply to every ML researcher, but I've often found that neuroscientists will often get very obsessed with the specific mechanism, the biological mechanism, like, oh, like, this is going to the hippocampus and here, like, interneurons are, are in play. Um, and they don't, a lot of neuroscientists don't really care about AI, only the extent that AI can illuminate the brain. So like, sure, the visual net can like, recognize cats and dogs, uh, the visual system can recognize cats and dogs, and so can, so can image net, but they might be doing it in a totally different way. And a lot of neuroscientists don't care that ImageNet can do this because it's not really illuminating how the human brain is doing it. So there's a there's sort of a care and I focus on on different things. And AI researchers, like, again, at risk of hugely overgeneralizing, but will often get really into methods. Like now it's research transformers or like LSTMs or RNNs, but oftentimes this can become ungrounded from our proof of concept, which is the brain. And yes, the brain isn't the only possible instantiation of intelligence, but it's a really good one and we don't understand it yet. So there's often like the sort of ungroundedness from biological data and assumptions about how the brain works that don't actually hold up when you look at the empirical data. So I really like this camp in, in between the two. I, th- I think it's super powerful.
0: Is that a big camp? Do you see a lot of people being involved in it? Or how would you wish that people would maybe communicate even more?
1: So right now, it's a pretty small camp of people who explicitly work on it. Like if I were to like name researchers, like there would be like Matthias Begke uh, in Germany. There's like Richards and Mila. And then there's like Yosha Bengio. Yosha Bengio would be less explicitly in this territory, but he often says in interviews that like, Looking at the brain and seeing what it's doing is a secret sauce in a lot of algorithms that he devises. Neural inspiration is controversial in the sense that it's not clear. Like oftentimes, oh, it was inspired by the brain is used to like justify whatever algorithm you create, and it's just a way to make your motivations sound grounded, and it's not actually neuro inspiration. So it is this loose area where, okay, you can be inspired by the brain on the molecular level, you can be inspired by the brain on the level of the neurons, you get neural nets that way, you can be inspired by behavior and psychology. There's a lot in developmental psychology to to be taken from in in developing these algorithms, you can be inspired by all of it. But I, I would say like the area I'm referring to explicitly are researchers who look, frequently look at the actual neural data. Dora Sao at Caltech also does this DiCarlo lab at MIT, Yemen's lab at Stanford. You actually look at at the data and form hypotheses. And you often use the data to make improvements to your your artificial intelligence algorithms in order to make them better. So you can take inspiration from the brain, look at feedback connections in order to make CNNs more robust, and actually try to iterate. Right.
0: You're not forgetting about the biological foundation as well. And... What do you think are the most ambitious or promising efforts in your field right now? And what is holding things back?
1: Ooh, ooh, okay. So... (laughs) It's a good question. I'd say like this field is is very much in progress. Like there are so many papers that come out trying to get everyone on the same conceptual page. There were a lot of arguments before. Can we really use neural nets to model the brain when they might be computing things in totally different ways? And there's only like a vague similarity that makes them useful. And we know so little about the brain that this is better than nothing. I... I think the recent work on deep neural nets has been really fascinating. And specifically, this is like training a deep neural net on tasks that humans do and then comparing the internal representations of the neural net to the visual hierarchy and seeing that they're actually quite similar. But I think that research is getting saturated. Like a lot of labs have picked up on it in the past five years. And I'm curious as to what's next. Like I'm really interested in things that the brain can do that that AI can't do yet. And there are a lot of things and on, on many levels. Like the first thing is that most neural nets are optimized with back propagation. And it's very unlikely that the brain is doing back propagation. It, it just doesn't make sense for the brain to be holding that state and for that state to be updating every single time. Like it's likely that there's some local learning rules at play, but we haven't been able to create neural nets that are actually like efficient, that don't use back propagation, meaning that there's some sort of like learning rule or, or like optimizer that we haven't, Written down in code that the brain is doing, which is fascinating. It means the brain is like a treasure trove of AI algorithms. And another thing is that humans are like really data efficient. So, like, when you have, for example, reinforcement learning algorithms, like, you have like DeepMind training their algorithms to play StarCraft. Um, StarCraft is a very complex game with like a huge parameter space. It takes them months and millions of dollars to train anything that's human level on StarCraft. But humans, can, humans don't need that amount of data. You could argue that they already have that amount of data through like millions of years of evolution and there's some form of transfer learning going on. And that's very possible and definitely contributing to it. But I don't think it's enough. I, I think humans are using local heuristics in a way that current RL algorithms are not capturing. So there's a lot there. Another interesting area of research is meta learning, like learning how to learn, which is this huge like that area fascinates me. It's this huge area of possibility that hasn't really bit trickled down into neuroscience yet, that I think will over the next few years.
0: And could you introduce meta learning a bit more? I wanted to ask about that anyway and perhaps I know you transitioned to that more recently. What do you see as its potential applicability to industry perhaps in a couple years or decades as well.
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I'm I'm not sure the answer to that, but just for a little context, like my interests have basically become increasingly abstract as I began studying intelligence, starting in molecular biology, going more into molecular neuroscience, going into cognitive neuroscience, going to computational neuroscience and AI, then matter learning and mathematics, which sort of grounds the whole thing, so there's a question of what is meta-learning? And this question is also debated in the AI community as well. You have this difference between radical meta-learning and then other meta-learning methods, which are more grounded in transfer learning. But the gist behind all of it is that meta-learning is learning how to learn. So to put this on a very simple analogy, say I want to learn French. I can learn French, but I can also learn how to learn French. I can study the process of learning itself, or I can ask my friends about how they learn. And then you can keep regressing this and obviously after a while this becomes a bit meaningless but the thing is in an algorithm it actually might not be meaningless it's it's unclear so in like some and like the more transfer learning based meta learning algorithms like MAML, you have this outer loop and this inner loop and like the outer loop like optimizes this like meta gradient over a a distribution of tasks so generalizing out of distribution is like this huge issue in ai if i train an algorithm on like cats and dogs? Can I also train it on like pigs and goats? <laughs> That's just one, one of many examples. And, and like uh, mammal is a way to optimize your algorithm so that it can be good at many different things. But then there, you have this notion of, of radical meta-learning, which traces back to a notorious researcher named Eugen Schmidhuber in, in Switzerland, who wrote in his 1987 diploma thesis, learning how to learn the meta hook. And he describes a sort of fascinating idea inspired by Gerda lasher Buck of the system that has like many meta levels that learns how to learn how to learn, learns how to learn how to learn. And this was before the deep learning days. So he's actually using genetic algorithms based off like biological crossover, which were super popular in the, late 80s. Yeah,
0: that's super interesting. And I guess you touched upon it just now. I was going to ask, what do you think we can learn also from like the old school AI researchers, maybe the first generation? So you have Minsky, Poppert, uh, Winograd, or even Hofstetter, like Gerlacher Bach that you mentioned. Do you think there's anything specific that maybe the fields of AI nowadays could take away from them?
1: Yeah, th- there's a lot. It's unclear the like what, what's useful and and what's not. Uh, a lot of things are like, grounded right. in this like symbolic. They're they all like very symbolic, like just like symbolic versus sub-symbolic. Where symbolic are these like explicit symbols, and sub-symbolic is sort of how neural nets work now, where you are from the perceptual input constructing a new representation. And yeah, like I I was reading some by some professors at MIT about narratives actually, like human narratives, like why. Are humans so obsessed with narratives, and why are narratives such an efficient way to store and compress information? And this relates to episodic memory. And a lot of our current AI algorithms don't have very good memory. And this problem is hard to who, to frame. Like, like, like framing the question is part of the problem, but. Current AI algorithms are not very really good at long term memory and con- contextual decision making. So, one example might be like if the old story In Search of Lost Time by Marcel Proust is frequently used as an example for associative memory, in which the narrator is like walking down the street in France and he sees this Madeleine cookie and suddenly he just has this associative string of memories and goes back into his childhood. And then the book just starts in his childhood for hundreds of pages. Um, Like, can we get AI algorithms that work in similar ways? Yes, we do have algorithms that work in similar ways based off similarity, but it is at an abstract level and it's unclear if RL algorithms are working working like that. So that's an area that needs to be way better framed, but it is a source of inspiration and it is something I'm reading more about because I think there's a lot there.
0: And do you still see a lot of people around you also um, referring to the older researchers, or is it very much driven by mainly uh, new stuff coming out?
1: I think it depends. Like it's a huge it's a huge research community, so there are definitely mm-hmm. researchers who are going to like iterate on like the latest transformer models or build GPT four. Maybe they're inspired by the old stuff. I, I don't know. But there are researchers who are really philosophically motivated who will create reading groups that systematically go through old literature and see what we're missing. So I, it, it very much depends.
0: That's great. Yeah. I'm happy to hear that that there's like active effort going on there too. You are working at Janelia right now, which has been described as the valves of biology. I'm super interested in what makes that uh, different incentive structure-wise and just in general, the framework of research compared to maybe other as- institutions.
1: Yeah. So Janelia has been fantastic. I'm currently a researcher at the Stringer Lab. And Janelia was created under the premise that if you just give smart people, a lot of resources and time, they will do amazing things. All of the research groups are very small. Like my research group, including my group leader is only four people. And the group leaders have this five year tenure. You get five years of a ton of funding and resources in order to like take your science in whatever direction you want. And the idea is to sort of like free researchers of the normal bureaucracy of working at a university. Like, you don't have to like always be writing recommendation letters or grading papers or lecturing students or like advising students. As great as all of that is, like the thesis of Janelia is that you don't have to focus on that. You can just purely focus on your research. And yeah, I found the structure there to be super collaborative and the hierarchy to feel very flat. So there's a lot of freedom to do innovative things. The labs around you are working on tools that, that you use. In conventional academia, there's a huge pressure to publish. And here this pressure is like slightly lessened. So people work on things that are important to science that aren't directly incentivized. For example, open source software or, or like tools that make research easier for other researchers isn't as directly incentivized in the university system because it, it can be harder to, to publish on stuff like that. But here it is easier to, to do stuff like that.
0: That's great. And I guess I found this really interesting that in the neuroscience space per se, there's not so much of a transfer between industry and research due to the absence of a really like proper neuroscience industry. You could make the case that uh, Neuralink, for example, is changing that and uh, more neuroscience startups maybe in that space. But in general, I'm super interested in what you see maybe um, being different due to the absence of an industry, how that maybe be shaping academia.
1: It's a really fascinating thing to think about. I remember, like when I was a sophomore in college, I'm like, I want to work in neuroscience, but I don't want to work in a lab. Let's see all the BCI companies and. At the time there was like one and it was current <laughs> and th- th- there might've been some other ones, but but they weren't, There's like Neural Electric and a bunch of other ones, but they like weren't taking interns. The funding was super, super limited. It's really hard to make a neuroscience project actually commercially viable. So of course there aren't going to be that many intern positions. And, and this is interesting because this is very different from the AI world, which is very integrated into industry. There is no neuroscience industry, like not yet. So the pressures end up being a bit different. I... Notice too, a lot of people will actually move from, especially if you're in like computational neuroscience, like you're incentivized to learn coding and you're incentivized to intern at like DeepMind or Microsoft or whatever in your summers because of how much they pay you as well. So you can see these neuroscientists get like through economic incentives can get pushed into AI. But another question is how does this shape the research? And this is really fascinating. And I'm not quite sure if there's a clear answer yet but I can just say what I've noticed and so like I've worked in uh, neuroscience research AI research both in academia and AI research in industry and I noticed with my AI research in industry like anyone who's worked in industry like the incentives are different like you're not trying to publish anymore like maybe you are if you're in like a research branch at one of these like large companies but I was working for a startup And this startup, it was called NLmatics. It was basically making search engines for enterprises. And the incentives here were completely around the customer. Like we would have a large client who needed a certain feature. And we would have this like, very intricate NLP pipeline that that was acting as this like information retrieval service. And we would have problems that we have to we'd have to fix and the process to research is really similar you're reading all these papers a lot of these problems have never been solved before and a lot of times you don't even encounter these problems in the lab like these problems all feel very natural and organic they all feel like very human problems like for example like one problem that's solved is like how do you form inferences over large like scopes of of, of text like our current like Transformer models like BERT can't handle stuff like that. BERT only works on like this paragraph level and on the scoped window. And we kept encountering this problem. And there is like academic research on this, but in academia, there's almost like less pressure to research something like this. Like you're more incentivized to research something novel and conceptually interesting than something useful. So I found that when I went back into research, my perspective felt totally energized and inspired because it became more clear to me what we were bad at or... Like, like referring back to the old AI literature about narratives are we're very bad at understanding narratives and like long documents and forming conclusions over long documents and problems that the startup I was at kept kept cropping up again and again. So I often wonder if research in AI because there is transfer to industry might be a bit more goal optimized. While in neuroscience, it's more theoretical, you're forming these mathematical models of the brain, there's less like transfer into actually BCIs or implementing it. So it's unclear what this practical, in quotes, practical use case of
0: this brain model is. That makes sense. And do you see any, I guess, channels of communications being try to be set up between uh, industry and, and research in the neuroscience industry? Or is this very, still like a very just unaddressed problem right now?
1: I I think there are definitely some labs setting up channels of communication, especially the labs that work at this intersection of machine learning and neuroscience. There's like like the Beth Gay Lab has a company that like connects researchers to, to industry. And yeah, if you're in computational neuroscience, there's a lot of overlap, but I think there could be a lot more. And I think a lot of young neuroscientists just observing my peers at Princeton aren't aware of how much autonomy, knowing how to code can offer you. And that's something that you find out later. And it's something I only found out by talking to practicing machine learning engineers when I was a junior.
0: Yeah, that, that connects to another question I meant to ask. What do you wish someone would have told you maybe besides learning how to code when you started out?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love that question. It's a really fascinating thought question to go back to like your first years of college or or whatever and think about how you would have done everything differently. And I wish someone had told me that if I want to study intelligence, I should study math. I should study math because it's the highest level of abstraction, like math, physics and and coding instead of studying biological neuroscience. But I didn't know that at the time. So I ended up taking a lot of chemistry classes, a lot of like organic chemistry. I was actually pre-med for a while because I wanted to actually go into the brain and make the surgical improvements myself. My understanding of abstraction was like basically non-existent. I didn't realize that you could embody intelligence on your computer itself. So yeah, my, my path would have been different in that sense.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Looking into the future, what are the exponentials in your field that you think will keep on growing? Where do you think like it's going in the next 10 to 20 years? And where will the world more broadly move in your vision?
1: Ooh, yeah, it's a good question. There's a huge push now for collaborative science. Like you read a paper and there are like 150, 200 people on it from all around the world, many of whom have never met each other, especially because neuroscience requires such massive scales of data that are expensive to collect. That's cool to see. You have education improving, like Neuromatch. To anyone listening to this, if you want to learn more about computational neuroscience, I highly recommend Neuromatch. It's this like online school. You don't even have to enroll. All the materials is just on GitHub, and it's full of Jupyter Notebooks. It's very beginner-friendly, and it goes through rigorously, like the fundamentals of neuroscience, so computational neuroscience. So this like open source education in neuroscience and and the knowledge becoming far more distributed. I I do see neuroscience continuing to collaborate with AI. And right now there are still a bunch of like philosophical dilemmas as to like how much they can learn from each other and like how much AI actually resembles the brain is constantly a debate question, but I still foresee them collaborating. And I see every improvement in AI improving neuroscience and and vice versa, like that, that, that connection is going to be super, super powerful.
0: Cool. And what is the implicit knowledge in your field that you think generally holds true but is not explicitly stated? And in that related to that, what has to be like learned anew through experience by everyone entering the field while there's no real reason for it?
1: Ooh. So the first part of your question, I guess it's sort of like a hidden curriculum. Or
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, curriculum mm-hmm. or also, I guess, an industry. Like Sometimes when people enter a field, I feel like a lot of the knowledge will just come to be, but be left very like unaddressed to anyone on the outside. You have to pick it up through experience, but it's never explicitly stated. And it costs, I feel like, a lot of time and productivity sometimes to not... <laughs> Uh, have those things be written down or communicated more effectively?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. Like, I think in in neuroscience, this is huge. My impression is that in industry, there's like a lot, there's a lot more incentive to write blog posts about your methods, especially because blog posts get you hired. But again, in neuroscience, you don't have that industry pressure. So every lab, I, I feel like, has this huge body of in house knowledge that's specific to that lab, like various like computational techniques. When I work with a new researcher, they usually teach me a bunch of things that they learned from their mentors that you can't find anywhere online, which is why Neuromatch is so great. It actually puts a lot of these techniques online. One example would be that when I was at Princeton, I took a class with David Tank, who worked with JJ Hopfield, who published the Hotfield Network. And the Hotfield Network was seminal in that it's like old school AI, but it was one of the first connectionist computational models of the brain. And I was fascinated by it because it's like this like, Ancient deep neural net, it's not feed forward, it's totally recurrent, but it, it was is something I felt like I couldn't find online very easily. And I stumbled into it due to him having been one of the originators or collaborating with the originators. And I wrote a blog post on Hopfield Networks. I thought more people should know about it. And I, I got a ton of messages like of people who were grateful that I'd written it. I, I was surprised. I mainly wrote it so that I could better understand it. But it became clear to me that there is this sort of like niche that needs to be filled of all this like specialized computational neuroscience knowledge that isn't out there in the open in the same way that machine learning knowledge is. I think machine learning knowledge has gotten extremely accessible. There are so many courses online. And that's somewhat true for computational neuroscience, and it's getting better, but it's not even close. So
0: would you give any advice to the neuroscientists, uh, maybe researchers listening as well?
1: It's interesting, because a lot of researchers don't necessarily have incentives to publish blog posts, which is why there aren't more, more of them. They have incentives to publish in academic journals. But I think initiatives like NeuroMatch are, are super, super cool, and maybe NeuroMatch could have a blog section where grad students could write in clarity and to to a more layman audience what exactly their research project process is like. I think the research process is something that's hidden. Like you see this final output of papers, but really the process of going through, weeding through this biological data and looking for patterns, and oftentimes seeing nothing, just noise, again and again, is a fascinating process because you're constantly drawing inferences and making decisions as to where you put your research. So it would be cool to see a blog that dives into the weeds and gives a day to day experience of what it's like to be working on one of
0: these problems. Yeah, that that sounds great. I hope someone's going to take that to heart and do it. I think you can also influence a lot of younger people that maybe be interested, but don't really know. Like it, It seems pretty unapproachable if you're totally new to the field. And those blog posts uh, could maybe foster excitement in like, the younger generation as well. So I guess uh, just throwing that in there uh, as maybe a piece of motivation <laughs> to otherwise disincentivized or unincentivized researchers, it's not really the focus in science, but it could still have a big impact as it did for you with the Hopfield article as well. I had a more specific AI question as well. I'm always super interested in the notion of understanding in AI. Can a model um, or a system model itself to completion? Do we have to understand our algorithms, or does it even make sense to to expect that, given how complex, for example, neural networks are? So
1: this question frequently crops up of like interpretability and what it means to understand a system. And oftentimes, like I'll get into a conversation about interpretability to find that everyone's talking about something slightly different. So yeah, what does it mean to understand something? Also, why do we want to understand it is huge. In terms of what it means to understand something, say you have a neural net, like what type of understanding are you looking for? Uh, there's a sort of narrative that neural nets are a black books. Are you looking for like a mathematical understanding, like a conceptual understanding where you know exactly which nodes are interacting like which with which other nodes or, or, or neurons in order to create the effects are you looking for, for like visualization there are a lot of like visualizations that kind of give an intuition as to what the neuron is picking up on. Are you looking for an English description or like an English narrative of what's happening in the neural net? All of these have been worked on and are definitely notions of interpretability. I I, I think something that is important is having better first principles of neural nets, which is currently like not quite there. Actually training neural nets is this like hacky iterative process where the human is acting as a sort of meta optimizer on the neural net, constantly tweaking the hyperparameters until a good result comes. So maybe having a bit more of a principled way to do it there would would, would be great. But yeah, the other component of all this is like, why do you want to understand it? And again, like one motive could be like improving the research process and and making it more principled and, and making this more theoretically grounded opposed to like this hacky art form. And another motive could be AI safety. There's this perspective that we don't know what a lot of these algorithms are doing, both on existential risk front, and this is where you get into Bostrom and ideas of the singularity being malevolent, but also on the sort of AI ethics and like fairness front, where we don't know how these algorithms are making certain decisions, and they could be making decisions on variables that we don't agree with, like gender and race. So in that case, it becomes... Quite important as well. The other perspective of this is that I, I often get the sense that some people expect these complex systems to be easily interpretable, and when they're not, they're they're dismissed. But the counter argument there is like, why do you expect this complex system to be human interpretable in the first place?
0: This the language of complex systems is not the language of English, and we shouldn't expect it to be. And um, do you think we can improve a lot on that front, or do you see like pretty Pretty strict, I guess, limits. I definitely think we can improve a lot, and this isn't my
1: my area of research. I'm not as informed on this as I would I would like to be. But improving a lot might look like forming a new language or maybe a new form of mathematics that can better deal with neural nets and thinking about them more abstractly. One frustration I have when training neural nets is that my results can vary. My my, my results can vary vastly depending on the hyperparameters I set. So maybe is there a way to train neural nets in a way that trains them at a higher level of abstraction. Can we think of neural nets in terms of families? Can we cluster neural nets in similarity space? Can we think of families of optimizers opposed to just optimizers? So developing this like more principled sort of language is something that would interest me.
0: Yeah. And looking back like a decade or two, how have things evolved in the space? I know like the last five years have seen a rapid increase in machine learning popularity and promise. How do you think we have made progress from a bird's eye view?
1: Right. So from just a very practical standpoint, we can now do all sorts of cool things that we couldn't do. Like we can classify images, we can generate like decently, like like semi-plausible text with GPT-3. We can now synthesize images from words with with like Dali. So all of that is new and interesting and fascinating. Of course, all the developments in reinforcement learning that can solve games. So there's a sort of satisfaction in being able to solve these tasks, even if our theory behind it isn't very good. I think our theory will catch up, but being able to solve these glamorous tasks, I I think is quite is quite motivating and inspiring. And I'm excited to see what else we're going to solve in the future. And I actually think that'll have something to do with narratives or, or understanding books across long time skills.
0: Yeah, so I would be super curious if you could paint like a picture of the world as you would see it in maybe 50 years from now, how do you think things have changed, especially with influences of the field of computational neuroscience, AI, making more progress? I know it's like very hard to extrapolate from current developments, but if you'd have to guess, how would things have changed?
1: There's a huge space of what things could be in 50 years, and I can go super sci-fi with this, I could go super dystopian with this, I could go super utopian with this. I'd say like a dystopian scenario, just to put things start things on that note, would be that we have adopted BCIs and our current recommender systems that we use for social media like Facebook and, and Twitter and, and Google are, are still in place, except now they're more literally in our minds and we're acting as a sort of cybernetic collective. Um, addicted to degenerate impulses, like your addiction to, I don't know, flat earther videos or whatever takes off with an even shorter feedback loop due to the connection being not just on your phone, but actually in your mind, we're increasingly closing the gap between thought and changing physical reality. So imagine this going the absolute worst way possible, where we're trapped in this incentive structure that no one person can fix A sort of Moloch to bring in slate store codecs. And yeah, there is like ideas of the singularity and like malevolent AI that I think are dangerous, but but they seem theoretical to me. So it's hard for me to instantiate what that would look like. I'm more afraid of this addictive oh. cyber bio collective that we're already in, but just taken to its extreme where you can have ads playing in your mind, like quite literally. But in terms of like where this could go, that's actually beautiful and good in 50 years. Why I'd hope we'd mastered BCIs in the most growthful way possible, like improving our memory, improving our intelligence and improving our retention, improving our emotional spectrum, taking away the, the bottom of, of that emotional spectrum where we don't experience suicide, suicidality anymore and having algorithms that can serve us in ways that currently they don't. Currently, I feel like we serve the algorithms in many ways, but algorithms that act as our, our guardians and our friends and who give us the right information when we need it. In a more active way. Like Google search is still grounded in, in the 90s. There's a sort of narrative that, that Google is going to be around forever, and maybe it is, but like the space of information retrieval systems is vast. And Google is taking up a very small point in that vast space. So there's this idea that we'll have new forms of information retrieval that give you information and protect you and, and help you and act as like a second cortex. I, I think like developing the second cortex is currently what our society and and species is is going through and it's boy it's been a wild ride so I hope we come out of it in a good place.
0: (laughs) I hope so too yeah what are like the the top things that you need that you think uh, need to change for us to to get from the current kind of dilemma of filter bubbles and, and the algorithms that we might serve more than they serve us to get to that utopia you just described?
1: It's an interesting and difficult question. So I'd be curious if, if you have answers to that as well. It's possible that like regulation and like philosophy of, of human rights, even like when America was founded, you like go back to John Walken. If you have your right to property, what if we have a right to attention or right to time or right to my dopaminergic system? Some sort of notion, obviously this could be taken to an extreme where it's, you can't show me anything because I have a right to my attention. Like, like at an, at, It's extreme. It's totally illogical. But I think some notion of that or, or some notion of I have a right to the system in my brain that's responsible for certain addictive behaviors it, it is interesting. And I, I, I do think like government regulation would have to come into play because currently tech companies are not incentivized to help you with that. They're incentivized to maximize revenue in, in view time.
0: Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. I think like all these things have been introduced in such a short time span and it doesn't seem like our evolutionarily shaped mind has been able to grapple quite with like the consequences like i feel like the past 5 years have shown us how much we cannot deal with that vastness of information and the dynamics that are going on, on social media and just cancel culture and like polarization it's just attribute to that i think we should definitely have more competitors to the current system that are trying out different business models so that they aren't optimizing for the emotional intensity of your response. Rather they find ways to monetize um, their services that that are not creating like all the conflict that we're experiencing right now, and that's very hard to do, I realize, but I think ultimately that would be a promising alley to go down even if nothing in computational neuroscience or like bcis changes like i think that would be like a good start to at least get us out of the current situation but it's obviously it's a tough one because I guess the network effects of, of the, our current companies are so strong that I'm not sure how we'll get out of this. For now, I don't know. Are you aware of any cool competitors in that space?
1: I'm sure there are many, but I'm I'm personally not familiar. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure people are working on this. But w- one analogy to this is just like the stock market. Like, how do you incentivize companies to go uh, into clean tech when they're incentivized to make money and? Like one answer is just like tax credits. Like Tesla's, so much of its success is due to like these government initiatives and, and getting great tax credits. Maybe something similar could happen where companies that optimize for human well-being could get tax credits that help its success and give it more of a chance against the current structures and in, in place.
0: Yeah, I would certainly hope so. And I'd also be curious whether people might come to their senses in a sense, like once once you are out of it, if you've ever taken a break from your phone for an extended period of time, I feel like people often become more cognizant of the fact that all the outrage and the polarization and like just the negativity that they experience on a daily basis because of this, how toxic they are and how much nicer it is to actually stay either without or, or with a better provider of news and of a social media feed. So. I wonder how much it could also just be, once, once you have exposure to, to that nicer way of communicating, how much that would already retain people. Yeah, but government involvement, it's an interesting idea. I would certainly like to see more experiments on that front.
1: Oh yeah, me too. And on the flip side, my phone is part of me, like, in a way that helps my navigation on the most, in the most literal sense. Like, as soon as I wake up, I check the time, and, and I know whether it's time to get up or not. And then I'm on a road trip in the Southwest right now, and then I use my GPS to, like, navigate on these sort of tracks. My my phone is very much part of my my intelligence, and in, in, in most ways, I embrace it
0: in most yeah, ways. yeah. No, I couldn't live without Google Maps. It's definitely become more of a part of me than I would uh, sometimes like when I don't have it. But yeah, it's true. It gives us so much goodness. But then at the same time, there are those obvious drawbacks. But the good thing is that they're not definite and that we do have a system where competitors can emerge. And I think probably will within the next couple of years. On a more personal note, I'm super interested in what idea or area, book or life experience, even your most excited about right now?
1: Ooh. Oh, so many things. Okay. Mm. Okay. So just on the... Mathematical side, and I can keep this quick so that we can move on to something else. I'm really interested. Oh, no, to...
0: go for it. Go into I'm, <laughs> yeah.
1: I'm really interested in proof search. But for example, you have this idea of Girdle Machine, which goes through like various proofs in order to find ways to improve its own um, functioning. So it'll have a proof search model and module, and then it'll have a policy module, which you do in some task. And it'll start with like mat- mathematical first principles in order to like derive algorithms that can help it improve. And This fascinates me because I feel like a lot of researchers I talk to are still in the deep learning paradigm, and this might be one way to get out of the deep learning paradigm where what's more powerful than backpropagation? Or what can we like learn backpropagation from scratch? Or can we have some sort of meta algorithm that opens up this giant space of algorithms that deep learning is only like a subsection of? So I've been reading a lot about proof search recently and I'm, I'm very excited about it. And, and, and I wanna find a way to, to implement it in, in a way that's tractable, which is currently the main problem is that it's too theoretical. But on a more life side, I am in a interesting and transitional place where I'm moving, I'm starting a collective house in Menlo Park. I want to live with a bunch of like super bright entrepreneurs and and scientists and people who love learning. And I I think the community, your immediate community is like extremely important. And Menlo Park is this heart of innovation. Like Apple and Google have founding roots and garages near and in Menlo Park. So I'm very excited for that. I'm excited to get into company creation. Like I'm very much involved in the research community, But I want to expand beyond it as well and implement a lot of these research ideas in practical algorithms that people use every single day. I'm interested in ways to navigate knowledge, better forms of information retrieval. I'm interested in textbooks. Like most of my knowledge comes from just reading textbooks. And I think a lot of textbooks are are locked um, away in libraries and like locked away in Amazon behind like hundreds of dollars. And I'm wondering if there's a way to sort of unlock all this knowledge and bring it onto the internet and make textbooks super accessible so that everyone can learn how to build rockets or about proof search or about machine learning from scratch. And we don't have to go through these like elite university filters in order to get that. So, thinking about how to implement that in a company has been some of my recent thought processes, and of course you get into this interesting scenario of time management and attention management. How do you be a competent researcher and a competent entrepreneur at the same time when you only have, I don't know, 15 hours of wake time? It's not it's not totally clear.
0: But That's a super interesting thought. We always hear about the knowledge being accessible to all nowadays. You have Coursera and a lot of articles online by really great researchers, but then at the same time, The textbooks seem to be like a front where not a lot of progress has been made to digitize them. Like I know that a lot of them are available on PDFs, but as soon as you get a little more uh, specific or you're um, requesting something that's been published maybe 50 years ago, things look a lot different. And I do often discover on Amazon that something I want to get is maybe like $700. (laughs) I think that would be actually like a great thing um, to do. I'd be super excited if something like that comes out in the next couple of years. Exactly.
1: Like the publishing industry is obsolete and they know it. But the question is, how is it going to shift? Mm Because right now there's a lot of regulation. There are a lot of copyright laws. The publishing industry is still very powerful. And the prices that they set in some ways are justified because they don't sell that many copies of every textbook, but in some ways are less justified because they'll often exploit these monopolies or not cut prices when they could due to the rise of ebooks. So there's a question of publishing houses being the sort of middlemen that's becoming increasingly irrelevant with the rise of self-publishing. Professors can just publish their own textbook and maybe not go through the middlemen, they just need access to distribution, which they might already have if they have a class. But then building a sort of layer of intelligence over all this knowledge, like running NLP algorithms and pipelines so that you can easily query textbooks and find what you're looking for is something that hasn't yet been done that I'm very interested in doing. So now it's a question of how does one do this? Navigating this like haze of like copyright issues or publishing houses being resistant to to this change. And that's something I'm very interested in diving
0: into in 2021 and 2022. Sounds awesome. And another personal question. What's something... That nobody will tell me that I should know? Like, what's something that you have discovered in your life that society, employers, or friends don't tell you about? Maybe not willfully conceal, but that still never quite is made explicit.
1: Ooh, ooh, okay. I, I love this question. It's like asking for trouble in, in, in a great way,
0: <laughs> <laughs> non intentional.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'd say to be totally frank, like I'd say everything that I learned is these dark truths that society doesn't want to deal with. Like a lot of my success has been through connections and and, like Mm -hmm. making connections and realizing that it's not like a lot of it is based off who you know, opposed to what you know. The thing is, this is solvable. You can just go out there and meet people. There are a lot of strange like racial and gender dynamics interlacing every power structure that people don't like to talk about that are definitely there. And it's definitely something I had to develop an opinion on myself. And I'd say my opinion doesn't really follow any of the existing political movements. It feels like a contrarian opinion. So developing that and also being able to navigate that and not offending anyone in this like politically charged cancel culture is has been like very interesting and I would say the third thing is has all been about prestige realizing that like I grew up on the east coast and the east coast is like way more prestige obsessed than the west coast in, in my opinion in in general and realizing that the east coast kind of trains its People, including me, to constantly report to some existing prestige structure or like to be legitimized by an existing prestige structure. In my high school, everyone was obsessed into getting into an Ivy League college, for example. But I find when I came to Silicon Valley, there's way less of that. There's way more of an understanding that prestige is constructed through accumulating capital, great marketing, mimetic influences like and desire, in which everybody respects this thing. So therefore, you respect this thing. And both by being in Silicon Valley and also some experiences at Princeton founding an undergrad uh, futurist tech conference with some of my colleagues, I noticed that I could construct prestige seemingly out of nowhere. Yeah, like it, Prestige follows the rules of engineering. And yeah, I don't know, someone who writes really well about this is, is Samuel Berger on on Twitter. He has this book called Great Founder Theory and a series of articles that goes into the dynamics of prestige in our society and what makes someone seem legitimate and, and what doesn't.
0: I'm super curious to dig deeper on that. How do you construct uh, prestige and see it as an engineering problem? That's a super interesting metaphor.
1: Right. So. Constructing prestige, there's so many, there's so much literature you can read on this. Like you can read about sales, you can read about actually pickup artistry, how to attract women. Like it's basically how do you make yourself seem super appealing and like high value? And there are several like general principles. Like no matter what you're looking at, that 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 sort of play out like. One thing that makes you seem prestigious is like, you you act prestigious, you associate with prestigious things, you you get endorsements from people. And and one way to get endorsements is a chicken and egg problem where it's like, all right, no one's endorsing me, I'm nobody in this field, you just get one semi endorsement. And then you tell someone else you got that endorsement, and then they feel more comfortable endorsing you. And then you get this sort of like snowball effect, you associate yourself with powerful things. Like even in your language, you use words of power, you reference existing power structures like in this conversation i referenced princeton i wasn't deliberately trying to appear prestigious i, I actually did go to princeton and it, it influenced me uh, but, but like you could do that for anything like reference darpa the u.s government open ai like y combinator google just like name whatever you want
0: yeah totally, totally.
1: yourself with it and people like, like the human brain is so conflationary they will conflate you with whatever you say and this is a scary secret about humans as to how much like you can, but also empowering how much you can create your identity and, and manufacture itself in order to do super cool things, which is ultimately the whole point of it all. Prestige just feels kind of hollow and it feels like a resource that you can employ to to get what you want. But what you want is ideally something that's, great for
0: like, the collective enlightenment of society. Right. Yeah. And that is very like underhyped, I think, uh, in schools. It always seems like you have to go through so many middlemen before reaching some goal of yours versus just starting and figuring it out along the way. Engineering your own prestige, that was very well put. Do you think on that note, maybe too, it's more important to know the written explicit rules or the unwritten implicit rules? And what's an unwritten rule that you've discovered in your life?
1: <laughs> it's, a, it's such an interesting question. I, I feel I feel like you, you've asked a similar question in various ways
0: throughout. I know, I know making that implicit like explicit again.
1: I don't know I think it's important to know the explicit rules in the sense that it creates like this common language among people and it's easy to predict people when you can have a better model of what they think the rule is but then of course there are all the implicit rules that you have to factor in that other people are thinking but you can often put a lower weight on the fact that they know it because it's implicit not always I don't know if one's more important than the other that's a really interesting question I don't know how how you would answer that
0: I always love to get people's um, answers anyway and yeah it's it's probably mixed (laughs) both between you and the people like asking for more trouble again (laughs) Mm -hmm. between you and the people you work with or are closest to what's the most like contentious topic that seems to repeat itself when you're debating a problem
1: this is a great question i would say it's like the value of being human like Mm -hmm. most of the people i talk to do deal with some form of artificial intelligence or like uh, some of my friends are video game designers and they will like design like other species that are not human and there's this sort of issue, is like how attached are we to being human and like these humanist values of like our existing morality or existing instantiation of what is good and evil? How much of that should we keep? If if we have control, it's not even clear. And how much of it are we super anthrocentric? And we're going to go, like, humanity is going to grow philosophically and have the sort of equivalent to the Copernican revolution, where we think everything revolves around humanity and our current instantiation of intelligence. And, and, And this is everything from morality to the way we get meaning. The way we get meaning is like we we have families, we have friends, we, we have like worthy missions, but the concept of meaning itself might be particular to humans. It may be more general to intelligent creatures. It may just be super useful, but we don't know that yet. Consciousness itself, like humans value consciousness. A lot of people will maximize consciousness. Like they will make the purpose of their mission to be to reduce negative valence and to increase positive valence and to minimize suffering. It's not clear to me that suffering is even important or like worth minimizing, a bit of a contrarian thesis. And definitely a subject of contention but my view is that humans are this tiny dot in this vast space of intelligences and it's not clear that meaning and consciousness are as important as we think i mean there's so much out there that we don't know it could be that this copernican revolution happens and like we take humans out of the center of the galaxy and put them in their proper place which is like a pale blue dot.
0: On the suffering note, I'd be super interested in hearing like more of your thoughts there.
1: So, like, oftentimes when philosophical people ask, what is, like, the best thing we can do to improve our condition? Like, the answer that they'll come to is to reduce suffering. Like, it's at the core of the effective altruism movement, and it's a pretty, big like, reasonable goal. Like, suffering just feels terrible, and it just <laughs> subjectively feels horrible. So why not reduce suffering of, like, everything that, that exists? But there's this alternate view where suffering is a biological response that, yes, has qualia attached to it that feels negatively horrible, but it's not clear that reducing suffering is the goal. And another goal, just in contrast, could be increasing our conceptual space so we have a better sense of where qualia and consciousness even fits into existence and developing a better ontology for that. I noticed that a lot of researchers, consciousness researchers, and, and my father was a consciousness researcher, so I've seen this like uphand, will become very obsessed with consciousness and research it for decades without much of a philosophical breakthrough so i do i don't think consciousness is tractable given our current our current ontology and researching intelligence itself might actually shed more light on Consciousness's role in in intelligence. So instead of focusing on my efforts on minimizing suffering, which for the record I, I think is a great thing, I think suffering. I don't like suffering. I don't like watching other people or creatures suffer. But instead of focusing on my effort on that, I'd rather expand our conceptual space and gain more context as to what we're dealing with. That makes sense.
0: What do I don't know that I don't know? Hence, what important questions have I not asked of you today? <laughs>
1: Ooh, very interesting. Oh, man. Is, it, is, is anything coming to your mind? I, I'll have to think about that for a little bit. We, we covered so much ground. I'm, I'm, yeah, pretty, yeah, happy. Yeah, right.
0: <laughs> I'm pretty happy with that. <laughs> no, I, I have learned so much. Thanks so much for being here today.
1: Yeah, thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate it.